Good morning. How are we? I got one woo woo. I love it. That's all I need. Thank you. Well, here's the thing. We are officially on the other side of the 4th of July, and that can only mean one thing. Back to school, baby. I am so ready. I cannot be the only parent. I love my children dearly. I love them so much. I wake up to their bright, shining, smiling faces, and I can't wait to see them put on a backpack and head out the door. Okay. I'm ready. Are there any students here that are ready to go back to school? Oh, we got one. Yes. We got one. I thought it was going to be like a solid no. Anyway, I remember... Um, when I was a kid, I was always so excited to go back to school because I knew a new school year represented a fresh start for me. And this year, I was going to do things differently. I was going to stay on top of things. I was going to do better. I was going to stay organized. I was going to get good grades. And like, I was going to stay organized. You know, what I would do is I, I'd, I'd get like colored notebooks that matched folders and I'd put them together and math was always red because that was like a danger subject. Um, but I'd stay organized this year, and it was going to be different. I was going to get a planner, and I was going to put all my assignments in there, and I wasn't going to miss a thing. I was going to get it all done, and it was all going to happen perfectly. It was going to be better. It was going to be awesome. And back to school for students is actually the equivalent of January 1st for adults. New year, new you. That's what we tell ourselves. This year, I'm going to eat right. I'm going to lose the holiday weight. I'm going to do dry January, and I'm going to make sure that I'm not actually addicted to alcohol. Now, this year's going to be different. I'm going to write the book that I've always wanted to write. I'm going to do those home projects that I've been putting off for so long. Or this year, this year, I'm going to get my finances in line. Does any of this sound familiar? Yes, if you just a giggle, giggle here and there, maybe. And even if you're not much of a goal setter, the fall also represents a new NFL season. Any football? Yeah, okay. We're not goal setters. That's okay. We're excited about football. And this year, maybe you're not thinking about what goals you're going to be setting, but you're thinking about your sports team and how this is going to be their year. This is the year where they're going to they're going to bring home the championship ring, the Super Bowl ring. I think it's the championship ring. I don't know anything about it. I don't know, but this is the year, right? See, we all want to see change in our lives. We want to live a life of meaning and purpose that's trending up and to the right. There's this longing inside of all of us to see our lives change for the better, for us to come fully to life, to live to our best and our highest potential, where our fears and our hangups, they no longer hold us back because we've conquered them and we've moved forward. And in the next section of Colossians, Becca, the next section of Colossians, Paul is teaching us how to do just that. By getting rid of sin in our lives through repentance, we get to live in our true identity transformed and free in Jesus. Living our best life as a follower of Jesus. And so if you wanna follow along this morning, you can grab a book, on, a book, it's a Bible, 
There's a Bible on the seat in front of you, and you can also follow along on your smartphone, and I'm gonna pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for our time this morning. And every single Sunday, it's always in like a rhythm, right? It's like in our weekly rhythm where we show up on a Sunday, and Jesus, you are here with us today. You are here with us in this moment, and you wanna bring freedom in our lives. And so we invite you to come. I pray that this morning we would leave so changed because of our experience of you. Amen. Okay, so we've been spending our summer in the book of Colossians, and in this book we can see that Jesus is the true vine that brings us to life. And there's no greater, loftier, better picture of Jesus than in the book of Colossians. He is supreme, he is our good news, he is our king, he is our God, he's our reconciliation, and Colossians shows us how Jesus is the one that brings us to life, how Jesus is our identity, he's our freedom from sin, he's the new life that we've always wanted. And last week, one of our pastors, Clint, he talked about how Jesus is our king of the past and the present and the future. And if you want, you can actually go on YouTube and find all of our old messages. So if you want to check that out later, you can feel free to do that. Just don't do it right now, please. Um, But As Clint talked about how Jesus is the king in the present, he talked about how we need to focus our hearts and our minds on the things of Jesus if we want to see our lives transformed. We have to actually know him to see our lives differently. And so this is a bit of the context that we're going to be using today as we go a little bit further into this passage. Um, So let me actually start out by reading you the passage from last week. It's Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And here is what we read. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Okay, that was last week's passage. And then today we're going to continue starting in verse 5, and here's what we read. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there's no Jew, sorry, no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So right after Paul, is my microphone doing something weird? No? Okay, just in my head. That checks out on a number of levels. Sorry. All right. So right after Paul is telling the church, you know, set your heart on the minds of Jesus. Set your heart and minds on the things of Christ. He takes this sharp left turn and starts talking about all of these sins. It's like a little bit of whiplash. Now what Paul is not doing is creating a list of do's and don'ts. 
And he's not making a list of like, these are like the really, really bad sins, so make sure you don't do those. And then these ones are kind of like a gray area, you know, just like don't dabble in these ones too much, don't make it weird, you know, don't, you know, do, do your best, but like, meh. See, our human nature, when we see a, a, a list like this, is we, we become self-righteous. We see a list like this and we go, sexual immorality? Oh, preach, I already know who needs to hear this. Actually, half the world needs to hear this. And what we do is we tie names of people to sins in the Bible without actually turning the mirror on ourselves. So we really need a clear definition of what sin is. And we're going to turn to our friends at the Bible Project to learn about what sin actually is. Ready? Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate. Because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin? This is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hair and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way, miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the Creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so sin is a failure to be truly human, but there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned, I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? 
Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, Chata is crouching at the door, it wants you, but you can rule over it. So in these stories, sin or moral failure is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, Yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin. All right. So sin. Sin is the failure to not love God and not treat others in the way they deserve and that includes how we treat ourselves. I think that we're all guilty. And Paul isn't just giving this exhaustive list of sins to avoid. What he's doing is he's using this outside-in perspective, starting with external actions and then moving to internal drives which cause conduct in our lives. But now it's a little bit easier for us to recognize the sin in our lives that we would love to be done with. Maybe it's addiction, or it's yelling at your kids. You have all these outbursts at your kids, and you, you're just so sick of acting like that. Or maybe there's like this secret sin in your life. Maybe no one knows about it, and it started off as kind of like a fun thing, and it's actually begun to take over control and you'd rather see it gone. You're getting worried about where it's leading you. These parts of our old self, we're happy to see them go, and hearing that we have the power to get rid of them is actually pretty empowering. But if we're honest, there are some sins that we love. They serve us, and they meet a need in us that is broken. The problem is that the human idea is that sin is good. 
And we see that in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, like the video said, with Adam and Eve. And we think that God has some strict rules that are meant to keep us from living life fully. Unfortunately, even what may seem like the smallest sin in our lives actually acts as an anchor holding us back from living a life transformed. When I was working on this message, I was scrolling through Instagram, you know, I'd take a little brain break, and I found this post that actually fit perfectly into what we're talking about. And here's what it said. Many of us live with the assumption that whatever is in the way of a better life resides outside of us. The thing that keeps us bound up and stuck are not external. They are within us. And then after that post, he had put a comment from St. Augustine, and here's what that said. But I was bound not by anybody else's irons, but by my own iron will. The enemy possessed my wanting, and from it he had constructed a chain for me and constricted me in it. Inordinate desire arises from a twisting of the will, and in the course of slavery to this desire, habit forms. And through lack of resistance to this desire, a certain inevitability emerges with these links, as it were, interconnected, and that's why I've called this a chain, a harsh slavery held me tightly in check. A little bit of gossip might be the reason why you have so much conflict in all your relationships or maybe why you feel like you lack meaningful relationships or friendships, or your anger, even though it just comes in occasional outbursts here and there, it might be the very reason why you haven't moved up in your career. Or a little bit of pride, a little bit of pride can sometimes come across as just confidence. I'm just feeling good about myself. But pride keeps us from letting Jesus have total control in our lives. And St. Augustine's words that we read a little bit ago were actually from his own experience as a sex addict. See, one day he was out with a friend, he was in a private garden, and they had with them a part of the Bible. And they were out in this garden, and as Augustine was hanging out with his friend, he began to feel like he was going crazy because he wanted to experience freedom from his addiction. And he was so overwhelmed that he actually got up and ran out of this garden crying and out of control because he, he was embarrassed, he didn't want anyone to see him. And then here's how he tells the story in his own words. I threw myself down somehow under a certain fig tree and let my tears flow freely. Rivers streamed from my eyes. Why not an end to my impure life in this very hour I began to pray? As I was saying this and weeping in the bitter agony of my heart, suddenly I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl, I don't know which, saying and repeating over and over, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. So I hurried back to the place where my friend was sitting. There I had put down the book of the apostle when I got up. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eyes lit. Not in riots or drunken parties, not in eroticism or, and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and make not provision for the flesh in its lusts. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once with the last word in this sentence, it was as if light of relief from all anxiety flooded my heart. Suddenly it had become sweet to me to be without the sweets of folly. What I once feared to lose was a delight to dismiss. You were emptying them out of me, my true and highest sweetness, emptying and refilling me with you, sweeter than all delights of flesh or blood, brighter than all lights, deeper than all inwardness, nobler than any honor. Augustine experienced true freedom from sin, and it wasn't his guilt or shame that brought him change. It was grace and love by seeing Jesus. By setting his heart and his mind on God through scripture, he was able to break free from sin. Now, I don't think that we're all going to hear angels in a garden, although I'm open-minded to that. It'd be kind of cool. What we see in his story is that if we set our hearts and our minds on God, he leads us to repentance, offering transformation and freedom. And this is what Paul's teaching us, that growing in Christ is coming to see that sin, all of it, isn't good for us. And growing in Christ is growing in faith. It's knowing and trusting that getting rid of the sin in our lives is what truly brings us to life. And with Jesus, you have the power to get rid of the things which bring us spiritual death. Paul said that you've died to the old ways of living because you've been raised to life with Christ. You carry the power of the resurrection in you. He's saying, focus on that. Think about that, the things above the things of Christ. And he's saying that we get to have this right now, in the immediate, here and now, as a follower of Christ, we have the power to put those things to death. And if you want to see transformation and freedom in your life, you have to first recognize the sins that mark the old ways of living. We have to throw them off. And the process in which we do that is through repentance. So we experience transformation and freedom through the act of repentance. Now I wanna make sure this morning, as we're talking about transformation and change, I want to make sure that you know that this doesn't come from trying harder. 